God Conversations with Tanya Harris. So let me ask you that question. What does God sound like? <laughs> well, you know, thunder, lightning. <laughs> Mother Teresa, someone asked her, when did God speak to you? And she said, whenever he wants. So essentially, the, the Bible is a, a collection of God conversations, if you like. I had a vision of a car accident, and I'm sitting on the couch thinking, why have I just seen this? How could I know if God was speaking to me? How could I know that that dream or that thought was actually just me thinking about, oh, I just had some bad pizza? Jesus said we'd recognize his voice and follow him. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation. Godconversations.com Hi, and welcome to episode 18 of the God Conversations podcast. My name is Tanya Harris, and I'm a pastor, speaker, and the founder of Godconversations.com. Today's podcast is the third in a five-part series on how to understand the book of Revelation. Now, you may have noticed we started this series saying it was a four-part series, and I promise you it's not because I talk too much, but we decided after someone asked me if I could go into a little more depth, if I could just extend it a bit. So we've turned it into a five-part series. Honestly, there is so much good stuff in this book, and we really want to take some time to unpack it. So, so far in this series, we've been looking at the setting of the book of Revelation and what was happening in the background of the day of the late first century AD when the Apostle John first received this dream vision and passed it on to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Then in the second part of the podcast, we asked about what were the emotions that John was experiencing and we learnt that emotions can often be an indicator and give us a little bit of a clue of the message that's being sent. In John's case, in the book of Revelation, we see that there was a lot of dramatic things happening in chapter 4 and 5 when we were looking at the lamb that was slain. And we see how John was responding to those revelations and that this was a key foundational issue for the book of Revelation and for understanding its message. Then we had a quick look at it, had a bit of a foundation for understanding, well, how do you interpret symbols? Most of our dreams come symbolically. They tell us sometimes 95% of them speak a symbolic language. So we need to have a framework for understanding how do I interpret this message I'm receiving? How do I understand the weird and the wonderful creatures and the the symbolisms and the numbers and the colours and the creatures that I see in the book of Revelation? We began to understand how we can approach that so that then we can look at our own dreams and understand what God is saying through them. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to part one or part two, can I encourage you, get a hold of those podcasts and take some time to listen to them. Take some time to read your Bible and catch up to where we're up to because today we're going to be looking more specifically at the symbols that we find, particularly in the first half of the book. And don't forget, of course, that we'd love you to participate in the podcast by leaving a comment at the website, right there on the podcast page. So, for example, if perhaps you've been listening to the series and as you've done that, you've received a dream from God and you've been working on what it means for you, we'd love to hear that. And, of course, the the team, the ministry is here to support you and to help you, to help churches, to learn to recognise the voice of God more clearly. So we're going to have a look at some of the main symbols that we see in the first part of the book in this podcast. We're going to work through them one by one and have a look at what each of them means. And as we do that, I think you'll see that it'll be like pieces of a puzzle coming together to form the pictures. 
The ones we're going to look at today, the symbols we'll look at today, are mostly representing the goodies, if you like. And then next podcast, we're going to look at some of the more, the symbols that represent the bad side, if you like. So first of all, let's start with a nice easy one. The seven lampstands, which we first see in Revelation chapter 1. You may have already guessed what the seven lampstands represent. It represents, of course, the seven churches that John was addressing. Remember that the lampstand is a Jewish symbol that was seen in the temple of Jerusalem. In fact, the lampstand had to be kept burning in the temple by the priests. The lampstand represents God's gathering of his people. You'll note that there's seven branches and that represents the complete church, if you like. We see Jesus walking among the lampstands and he's holding up the seven churches. Jesus is caring for them. He's preserving them. He's aware of what's happening and he's looking out for his people. He's looking out for his church. The next prominent symbol that we see, we've already mentioned in Revelation chapter 5, we see the symbol of the lamb, the lamb that looked like as though it had been slain. And very simply, the lamb represents Christ. It's interesting that we also see Jesus being represented in other ways as well, sometimes a little bit less symbolically, if you like. But when we see him like this, he's also dressed in symbolic clothing. So have a look at Revelation chapter 1. We see that he's wearing a robe with a sash and it represents the garments of a judge. There's that imagery of justice. It's a much more majestic appearance. He has white wool hair. We see this image in Daniel and often it's associated white hair, of course, with wisdom or old age. His eyes are on fire. His sight is piercing. He sees through the facade of evil. His feet are bronze. Again, an allusion back to the book of Daniel where, where bronze feet represented judgment. We see a sword coming out of his mouth and the Apostle John tells us that it represents the word of God, which is truth. You might even recognise the image from Hebrews where it's mentioned that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It represents the power of God's word against deception. Later in Revelation chapter 19, we also see Jesus dressed in a robe, but this time his robe is dipped in blood. And it's the blood of his sacrifice. It's what marks him as being worthy to open the seals and to take his place on the throne. The next prominent image that we see is the saints in white robes. These are the people of God who wear this white linen as a symbol of their righteous acts. They are those people who've endured. They're the ones who've stayed faithful to God. And because they're wearing that symbol of purity, they're seen as holy. They're seen as separated to the cause of Christ. Revelation 2.4 says, Yet you have few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So we're not talking about dirty clothes here, obviously. But they will walk with me. They're dressed in white, for they are worthy. And these are the saints. These are the people of God who follow the way of the Lamb. Like Jesus it's as though their robes have also been dipped and washed in blood. That is, they've received the salvation from the Lamb. But they also follow in his footsteps. 
They follow the way of self-sacrifice and some of them even to the point of death. They've followed the Christ and in doing so have shed their own blood. Have a look at Revelation chapter 7 verse 13 and 14. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So God's people are called not to be naked, but to clothe themselves with white robes. In other words, with righteous living, and that involves staying faithful to the way of the Christ. We see this in Revelation 16, 15. Can you see the symbolism of the colours here? In Revelation, we also see that colour is symbolic. Well, it's obviously symbolic because as every person who does the washing knows, if you take white linen and wash it in blood, it's not going to come out white, obviously. So the colours here are even operating symbolically. In other places, we also see colours like gold representing royalty. The fifth prominent symbol that we see is the crown of life, Revelation 2 verse 10. See, there's a promise for those saints who are dressed in white that even if they literally experience death, they will be rewarded. We see the saints worshipping around the throne. They're wearing a crown of life. This is their reward, the glory of fellowshipping with Christ, of reigning in his kingdom. It's not a literal crown. We're not all walking around wearing gold crowns on our heads. It's the idea of glory, of reward. Revelation 2.10 says, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Revelation 7.16-17 also talks about the reward that's given to those who are faithful, that never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun won't beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. Why? For the Lamb at the centre of their throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The next symbol that you'll notice is actually a multifaceted one and it's the symbol of numbers. You'll notice a lot of numbers in Revelation and they appear to be the same kinds of numbers. Have you noticed this? Well, like colours, numbers are used symbolically, especially in the ancient world. In fact, you see this kind of patterning all the way throughout the Bible. I think of the seven days of creation, the 40 years on the 40 days of testing. You see 12 tribes, then you see 12 disciples. And you see some of those numbers appear again in Revelation. And there's a reason for that, because in the ancient world, numbers had profound meaning. So one of the most prominent numbers that we see, for example, is seven. Sometimes we call it God's number. It's very much the number of completion or of perfection. There's seven angels, seven seals, seven horns, seven trumpets, seven branches of a lampstand. We also get the number of ten, which is very much seen as a number of completeness, the number of four, the meaning of that related to comprehensiveness or all-inclusiveness. Then you get the numbers 12, 
repeating a lot, and multiples of 12. So I think, for example, of the 24 elders. And in many ways, that can be seen to represent, again, God's people. Remember, there were 12 tribes of Israel, and then there's 12 apostles. So 24 is obviously a multiple of that. And people have seen this as representative of God's people in both the Old and the New Testament. Then in chapter 7 of Revelation, you get this larger form of 12, which is 144,000. And it talks about having 12,000 people from each tribe. And we see that really it's very perfectly rounded, perhaps too perfectly rounded to be literal. Instead, we can see this number as being symbolic of God's people, representative of the whole great crowd from every nation, tribe and tongue. And we, and we tend to see this because of, of what separates them. Have a look at that passage. They have the seal of God in their foreheads as opposed to the mark of the beast on their foreheads. And a seal, in this case, is a sign of ownership. It marks you, you belong to Christ. The 144,000 are led by the Lamb. They sing his song. They are pictured as virgins, symbolism for their purity. They're blameless. They follow the Lamb wherever he went. They represent the people of God who are faithful to him, who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Then we get a thousand, and this can be quite a controversial issue. But what we tend to see and what I think probably is a good way to understand that that number is that it's infinitely large. It's a massive number. So, for example, in Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 3 verse 8, the word a thousand is used to describe an awful long time. A day to the Lord is like a thousand years. So we can understand this as an idiom meaning forever. It's a time of, of eternity, a time of awful long time, almost too countless. A little bit like when Jesus says, how many times should you forgive someone? 70 times seven. He's not literally saying you get to 490 and then you stop. He's saying multiple times over and over and over again. The last significant number that we get is one you may be familiar with, and that's the number 666. We see this in Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, where it's identified as the number of man. And in that day and age, the number six was identified that way. In contrast, particularly, you guessed it, to the number seven, which is God's number. So here you've got those who are marked by man and those who are marked by God. People who follow the way of the Lamb and people who follow the way of man or of the empire. Revelation 13 says this, This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. It is interesting to me that this number 666 is seen probably to allude to the ancient practice of gematria, where numbers could stand for letters. So remember, Roman numerals are used as letters of their alphabet. So after looking at the original language, many scholars agree that this number is linked to the numerical value of a person's name. And of course, the leading candidate for for that person's name is the emperor, of the day. So depending on the dating of Revelation, you would take that either to be Nero, 
the first emperor who persecuted Christianity in, a, in an incredibly vicious way. Or more likely it was Domitian who was rising himself up at that time and calling himself God and an antichrist. The number 666 could also be representing the Roman Empire generally. We can't be too dogmatic about it, what it represents. His audience, as we said before, probably understood clearly what the number meant. But what we can see is that the number 666 alludes to the way of man as opposed to the way of God. It represented the way the empire worked, the way it handled power, the way it was violent and oppressive, the way it was opposite to Jesus' example, who gave himself for others, who laid his life down. Interestingly, the mark of the beast was put on the person's forehead or on their wrist. Again, a really symbolic action to say, this mark is defining how I think. This mark is defining the work of my hands. Revelation 9 verse 20 to 21 talks about those who follow it with the mark of the beast. Let me read it to you. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot, they, they cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. The contrast is between the people of God following the ways of the Lamb versus the people who are following the way of empire and humanity's way of doing things. We see very clearly here two different ways of living, two different ways of worshipping. The next symbol that we see, the next reality that we see is in Revelation chapter 9. And here we see vicious armies engaged in a great war. Remember, this book is about turning back the curtain so that the recipients could understand the spiritual battle behind it all. So we see armies and they're represented by creatures, it says, like locusts with scorpion tails. It's an interesting image, isn't it? And probably if you've read the book of Joel, you remember that there was a plague of locusts and, and plagues of locusts are innumerable. They're massive, enormous in number. And probably the imagery is referring to the number of the armies that are set up against the throne of God. Very much represents the power of the empire that they were facing. We said before that the Roman Empire was almost seen to be invincible. The armies also looked like horses. Again, the association with war. They were led by King Destroyer. Their heads were like lions. Fire was coming out of their mouths with smoke and sulphur. And I'm sure Tolkien got some of his inspiration for his orcs in this passage. But if you think about it, these kind of armies, again, the imagery that we see here, represents the fierceness of the empire to the churches that day. They were powerless to stand against the empire. They were powerless to stand against the pressures to worship the emperor. They would have felt very much outnumbered and overpowered. So these scenes accurately depict the nature of the circumstances around them in very symbolic form. It's a spiritual war 
that's going on behind the scenes. But as the book unfolds, we're going to see how the people of God are encouraged to conquer, what weapons they are called to use to fight back. The next symbol we're looking at is the two witnesses that we see in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. These two witnesses are seen measuring the temple. They're described as two olive trees and two lampstands. In order to understand the symbolism here, you need to go back a little bit and remember a vision that we see back in Zechariah. And it's a reference to what happened when Israel came back from exile and the temple was rebuilt. In that case, the angel commissions two leaders, also called olive trees, and they were called to rebuild the fallen first temple. It's quite a controversial question about what these two witnesses represent. Some people think that the two witnesses are two actual people. Others say that they're symbolic of the witness of the church. So the question is, which is it? Uh, Is it symbolic or is it literal? And I think this is one of the challenges we have in discerning the symbolic meaning of dreams and visions. I know I have found this in my own life. Some of you may have heard me tell the story of the banker's home. Many years ago, I was looking for a place to live and I had a dream. And in the dream, I saw this house that I knew belonged to a banker. I saw various scenes in the dream. And as I woke up, I felt like God was speaking to me about my future very clearly. But in reflection on the dream, my conclusion was that the house I had seen in the dream was symbolic. It was a massive house. It was huge. And that was the impression I got in the dream. And I really felt that God was saying, in your future, your life is going to be bigger than you ever expected. Houses are typically a symbol of our lives. If you think about it, Jesus used this symbol himself when he talked about a house being built on a rock compared to a house being built on the sand. In this case, house meant life. So it made sense to me that God was saying, I'm going to extend your life just like this house is bigger. Well, if you've heard the story, you'll know a few weeks later that I was offered a new place to live. And when I went over to the house and found out it belonged to a banker and the scenes were the same as what I'd seen in the dream, I realised that the picture was literal as well as being symbolic. So the question is, when God speaks to you in this way, how do you know if it's real or not? In the sense that, how do you know it's literal? Or how do you know it just represents something else? In the past, when people have read Revelation, they've got quite stuck on this. They've interpreted many of the symbols of Revelation literally. I think, for example, of the number 666 that we were just talking about before, and I remember some of the speculation that went on about credit cards and how the numbers you know, on the credit cards somehow meant that we were approaching the end of the world and, and careful We should be careful with our credit cards. Some have referenced Gog and Magog in Revelation chapter 20, which uses the imagery of a battle with foreign armies in Israel way back in Ezekiel. And they've said that this is literal, that there's going to be armies from the north that will come in. It's going to be Russia that will come in and invade Israel. So they've taken this again, literally, I would say that it is safe to assume the whole book, by its very nature, is symbolic. 
We see, for example, the four living creatures have faces of lions and ox and man and eagle, and they're covered in eyes. They're clearly not real creatures. They're symbolic. And I think for the case of the two witnesses, it's good to think about them in this way as well. I think that the logical interpretation of the two witnesses is that it it represents the witness of the church, the witness of God's people to the way of the Christ. After all, they're described as ones who testify to the Lamb. They stay faithful and they're martyred by the beast. But then they're resurrected. The promise that God was giving to those who were under threat for dying for their faith. And just like the lamb who lay broken in a tomb for three days, they too would be resurrected and they would experience ultimate victory. So the two witnesses then could easily represent the witness of the church who stays faithful even to the point of death. We see this kind of principle operating throughout the Bible when it talks about having two or three witnesses that agree together. It establishes a truth. And I think this could easily be John's way of referring to the church's witness who confirmed the truth of the Lamb and the presence of God. The last symbol we're going to look at is the symbol of incense. We see this in Revelation chapter 8. In this scene, we see incense being offered on the altars and it's symbolic of prayers of God's people. In the scene, we see an angel lighting the incense. The smoke goes up to God and then the fire from it is sent back to earth. And the result is that we see all sorts of geographic phenomena, lightning, thunder, earthquake. And it's a powerful image to show that our spiritual weapon, our way of overcoming the enemy, is to send up those prayers. And in a symbolic way, they go up to heaven. And the result of that is that it comes back to earth and it has incredible impact. Our prayers are powerful in the spiritual realm. They, have a diff- they make a difference on the natural world. So as you can see, as we've gone through each of those nine symbols, I hope you're beginning to unlock the message of Revelation I hope you're starting to get familiar with some of the process of discerning what is God talking about here? And can you see how imagery can be really powerful, how it can be effective in communicating a message? Now, the truth is we can't see our prayers go up to heaven, but this beautiful picture that we see, the prayers of the saints going up like incense, like worship, going up to heaven and then having an incredibly powerful effect like thunder and lightning and earthquakes, powerfully affecting what's happening on the earth. I hope you can also see that at the centre of this book that the key to this revelation is Jesus, the lamb that was slain, the one who is worthy of our worship, worthy of rejoicing because he's shown us the way to God. He's shown us the way God works and as his people, how we should follow. You know, most of our dreams are symbolic and God uses this language to communicate his heart and his will to us. And when he speaks to us, he may use pictures. He may use this kind of imagery. And then it's up to us to understand what he's saying. If you have a dream and you think it's from God, can I encourage you to do this? 
Be like the seven churches who received John's revelation. Think about what's being said. Pray, ask God for discernment. Ask yourself, what does this symbol mean to me? What does it represent? Use the example of the book of Revelation to see that God speaks in a powerful way and that often he uses pictures to do so. And can I encourage you with one more thing? Some homework. I'm a bit of a Bible girl, you may have noticed. But I think you're going to find it helpful. What I'd love you to do is grab your Bibles and over the next couple of weeks before the next podcast, read up on Revelation chapter 4 to 11 and see if you can understand it now that we've talked about some of those symbols. See if you can see some of the themes that are coming out of this book, this very powerful book that has relevance to us today. Next week, we're going to look at another group of symbols We're going to look at some of the symbols of the the monstrous dragon and the beast and the prostitute and then the more happier symbols that, that signify the culmination of the story, the wedding feast, the new Jerusalem and the temple. I hope you're really enjoying this series. My prayer is that it's unlocking some of the mysteries of this book and that you're finding it can be relevant to us today, but also that it's giving you a few keys to understanding your own dreams, that as you wake up this week, that you're asking God, Lord, speak to me. And as he does, that he'll begin to unlock some of his heart for your life and some of his purpose for what he wants you to do. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast by Tanya Harris. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. So post your comments on the blog page of godconversations.com or at facebook.com forward slash Tanya M. Harris. Help us to equip others to recognize God's voice by rating the series on iTunes. Remember, Jesus said we would know his voice. It was never meant to be a one-way conversation.